The following message is from Westway Christian Church in Scottsbluff, Nebraska. If you'd like to know more about us, go to westwaychurch.com. Thank you for listening. Well, hey, good morning. If you have your Bible, I would love for you to open it to Romans chapter 2. You can do that in your Bible. You can do that on the YouVersion app. If you have one of these study guides, um, there are not a lot left. Uh, So I would encourage you to pick one up um, today on your way out because they're probably going to be gone after this morning. Um, As you're turning to Romans uh, chapter 2, let me remind you of a couple things. I want to remind you that the church in Rome was likely founded by by Jewish converts to uh, Christianity. And they led Gentiles, they led, they led Romans to become followers of Christ in the midst of that church. And after a decade or so of really being in charge in the church as Jews, um, Claudius Caesar uh, kicked all of the Jews out of Rome. We talked about this, um, we've talked about this over the past couple weeks. Claudius Caesar kicked all of the Jews out of Rome. And some of those Jews, uh, namely Priscilla and Aquila, found themselves in the city of Corinth, where they met Paul, and they were able to likely tell Paul some of the things that were happening back in, back in Rome. And then when Emperor, when Caesar Claudius died, um, the Jews were allowed back into Rome, and they slowly began to make their way back into Rome. And what they found when they arrived back in Rome is whatever, whatever positions of power and privilege they had within the church were gone. Does that make sense? See, they had been the leaders in the church before being kicked out of Rome, They come back five years later, and what they see is now the Gentiles are in charge. And there's probably a little bit of wondering what happened to their church in the midst of that. And this would have manifested itself in lots of different ways. And as we read through the book of Romans, we're going to see these little hints. Um, They would have manifested themselves in things like not honoring the, the Sabbath in the way that the Jews honored the Sabbath. What we see is there's a shift in, in that first century Christianity, a shift away from the Sabbath as Saturday to worshiping on Sunday, the Lord's Day, the, the day that Jesus was rec, uh, resurrected. We would also see that the, um, that the Gentiles would have moved away from a lot of the rituals that the Jewish Christians would have followed. And this would have shown itself up likely in the food that they were allowed to eat. So all of these changes are taking place and the Jews come back. And again, they're like wondering not only where do, we, where do we fit in the church? Where do we fit in Rome? But where do we fit in terms of God's people? Because for thousands of years, we've talked about this the past couple weeks in our small group. For thousands of years, the Jews had really had stamped into their brains, like these are the ways that God is worshipped. These are the ways that God is honored. These are the ways that God is praised. So, so they, weren't just, they weren't just culture. It was, really, it was who they were. So coming back into this situation for the Jewish people would have been very, very, um, very difficult. And the big picture of Romans that we're talking about over the course of the series is this. Paul's intent is to remind the Christians, both Jews and Gentiles, of their inclusion in God's plan. Paul's intent is to remind everyone, Jews and Gentiles, of their inclusion into God's people as, as the church, as Jews and Gentiles, and to call them to a life that demonstrated that they were in that relationship with God. Does that make sense? So they've been invited, they've been included, they've been brought along with the mindset of actually being transformed 
by God himself. And, and Paul's way of doing this is by talking to three different audiences in the letter. And there's this really, really interesting nuance. If you've read through Romans a few times, and I hope you have, as we read through Romans, sometimes it can be kind of hard for us to figure out who exactly Paul is talking to. On one sense, Paul is talking to the entire church at Rome. He writes this letter and he's, he's writing to all of them. But there are times when we slow down and we really take a look. Sometimes it seems like he's talking to the Gentiles. He's calling the Gentiles to something. And other times it seems like he's talking to, more specifically to the Jews. And he's very, he's very talented um, in the way that he does this. I said a few weeks ago, I think this is, uh, this is probably the most important letter ever written. Um, Paul's a genius and he knows how to talk to the audience and, and communicate what he wants to the audience that he's speaking to. And what we need to do is we need to pay very close attention as we're reading so we know what audience Paul is speaking, to what audience is Paul teaching. Last week we talked about chapter 1 with a special focus on verses 18 through 31. And at least 30 times in those verses between 18 and 31... The, 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 the pronouns they, them, their, or themselves are used. 31 times. So Paul is clearly doing something by using the pronoun in the way that he's using it. In these verses, what Paul is doing is he's primarily speaking to the Jewish people about the Gentiles. Does that make sense? Like a phrase that we might, we might use in our, in our day, and especially in the way that he's doing it, is he is othering the Gentiles. He's talking about them, they, their, themselves. He's, he's talking about them to the Jewish people. And these sinful behaviors in Romans 1, 18 through 32, are really a stereotyped understanding of what the Jews would have believed about the Gentiles. So we're not going to do this. If we would go back and we would read all of those verses again today, we can kind of imagine in our, in our minds that as, as this is being read to the churches in Rome, talking to the Jews about the Gentiles, I think the Jews would have probably started to feel pretty good about halfway through that list. right? That would have, that would have enhanced their self-esteem um, quite a bit. And that's one of the reasons why Paul is doing that, is he's, he's trying to in advance their self-esteem. He's trying to build them up um, to do something, but he's also doing something to the Gentiles. Remember, the Gentiles have the power. The Gentiles have the privilege within the church. So what he's going to do is he's going to list off all of these sins. And what are the Gentiles going to feel? Well, they're going to feel a little bit of conviction. Does that make sense? It's going gonna, it's gonna to kind of equalize the relationship. It's going to equalize the power differential that's taking place in the church. So when Paul's doing this, he's revealing to the Jews their self-righteous attitude so he can do something about it. Paul is doing something here. He's addressing the, the power disparity. He's addressing the disunity within the church. And he's doing it by talking about the Gentiles to the Jews in a way that's going to equalize that out. And what we want to notice today, as we read chapter 2 here in a second, 
is there is a huge pronoun change in chapter two. Um, it's actually the first word in chapter two in the New Living Translation. It's you. See what Paul's done in this last half of Romans is he's talked about them. He's talked about their. He's talked about themselves. He's, he's, he's trying to draw attention of the Jews in particular away from, from themselves. And here's verse, verses 1 to 4. You may think you can condemn such people. Remember, Paul has just read off, just listed off all of these stereotypical sins of the Gentiles. So the Jews are feeling good about themselves. And what does Paul do? He says, you may think you can condemn such people, but you are just as bad. And you have no excuse. When you say they are wicked and should be punished, you are condemning yourself for you who judge others do these very things. And we know that God in his justice will punish anyone who does these things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same thing? That's a lot of yous. What you should do, ha, see, I just did it. What you should do, this week, is you should read through Romans chapter 2 and you should underline all of the yous. Since you judge others for doing these same things, why do you think you can avoid judgment, God's judgment when you do the same thing? Don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see in his kindness that his kindness is intended to turn you away from your sin? See, here's, here's what Paul is saying. He's saying their sin is bad and they have no excuse. You, your sin is bad and you have no excuse. Why? Well, last week we talked about the way, one of the ways that God reveals himself, and we're going to spend a little more time on this here in a few minutes. One of the ways that God reveals himself is through creation. Okay? So what Paul is saying to the Jews is, is you think you can judge them but you sin too, and you are without excuse. Why? Because the Jews don't just have creation that God has used to reveal himself to them. The Jews have something else. What do the Jews have? The Jews have the law. You see how that works? It would be one thing Paul is essentially saying. You would be on equal footing with them if all you had was creation to reveal who God is. But you have something more than who God is. You have the law. You have the benefit of receiving the law. And for the next several chapters, what Paul is going to talk about is the relationship between Jewish people and the law. In verses 2 and 3, we see that God's justice and his judgment is total and all-encompassing. And what he says is, Jews, you are not going to avoid this. You are not going to avoid God's justice. And I love verse 4. This is the Mulholland paraphrase. Don't mistake God's kindness, tolerance, or patience for acceptance. Did you hear that? Don't mistake God's kindness, tolerance, or patience for acceptance. Don't we often do that? Don't we often think, well, 
well, if I was really bad, God would stop me. I mean, we probably don't want to say that, right? But don't we think that? Like, God must be okay with my sin because he's not stopping me. He must be okay with my sin because I still have a job and I still have a spouse or I still am in relationship with all the right people. So it must not be that big of a deal that I'm sinning. And what Paul is telling the Romans here is don't mistake God's patience and tolerance for acceptance of your sin. You're not going to get away with anything. These are verses 5 through 16. But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself. There's a lot of yous in here. For a day of anger is coming where God's judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they've done. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jew first and for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God from all who do good, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. I want to pause here for a second. Like, this is, this is twice in two verses that Paul has used this phrase for the Jew first and then for the Gentile. If we were to flip back to chapter 1 and we would look in verse 16, Paul writes this, For I'm not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It's the power of God at work saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and the Gentile. So what I said a few minutes ago, remember, the Jews are trying to figure out what their place is within the church. Are we still God's people? Do we still belong? And what Paul is doing here is he's telling them, yes, you are still in God's kingdom. You are still God's people. You do still belong. Verse 11 in chapter 2, for God does not show favoritism. When the Gentiles sin, they'll be destroyed, even though they never had God's written law. And the Jews who do have God's law will be judged by that law when they fail to obey it. For merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It is obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they're doing right. And this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God through Jesus Christ will judge everyone's secret life. See, just like, just like the Gentiles in chapter 1 who, who, who know God, because he's revealed himself through creation, who knows something about him as his invisible qualities, as his power, his divine attributes, just like they know that and, and they turn against God, right? They willingly reject. That's what Romans chapter one says. Just like that, the Jews are stirring up punishment for themselves. How? Because they've not only rejected God's creation revelation, but they've rejected God's revelation through the law. And when that punishment hits, they're going to feel the full force of God's judgment on them. No one gets away with anything. 
as I was reading through this, I've used this phrase, premeditated in relation to God's judgment. See, what we're, what we're reading here is God's justice and God's judgment on people who are sinners is premeditated. It's well thought out. It's not unreasonable. It's not off the handle. It's completely premeditated. God knows what he's doing when he judges people, when he punishes people, when he meets out his judgment. He's completely fair. He's completely just. And God is completely on purpose. And here's the measuring stick, right? We're trying to figure out as we, as we read through the Bible and we think about what our relationship with God looks like. And we, we wonder, are we really Christians? Are we not really Christians? How can, we, how can we know what's the measuring stick? Well, Romans 2 is telling us it's based on what we've done according to the revelation that we have received from God. I'll say that again. It's based on what we have done according to the, relation, uh, to the revelation that we have received from God. Let me, let me explain this. Talk about revelation for a minute and not revelation, the book. We did that last year. This is God's divine revelation. The first of which theologians believe there's something called natural revelation. Again, that's Romans 1, right? That's Psalm 19. I look up into the sky and, and, and the heavens pour forth their speech. I see creation. I see the monument. I see mountains. I see a butterfly like Romans 1 tells us that God is revealing something about himself. Right? That's called natural revelation. Um, here's, here's the second one, and I just call it revelation through the law. In Exodus chapter 20, when Moses gets the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, natural revelation, the way that God reveals himself through creation, is then, is then superseded by the law. Right, because we've now learned something else about God. And here's the third one. It's revelation through Jesus. Jesus has fulfilled the law. Which is why keeping the law doesn't save you. Jesus has fulfilled the law. And what's, what's happening here is this is... Paul is talking about like this progressive, progressive method of God's revelation. It always goes forward. It never goes backwards. And here's what I mean by that. As someone who has heard the good news of Jesus Christ, I can't at some point decide, you know what I want to do? I don't want to believe in Jesus anymore. I want to take a step back and I just want to follow the law. See, that doesn't work. Because as we read, and we're going to read through the book of Romans, the law won't save you. Keeping the law doesn't save you, only Jesus does. And then what I also can't do is, let's say I've, I've heard, I'm, I'm a Christian, I'm following God, I also can't, back, can't go back and say, well, I don't want to worship God through Jesus, I just want to worship God through creation. I just want to know enough from creation. See, it's always progressive. It always moves forward. And this concept and conversation that Paul is talking about here, this is upending their understanding of what it means to be a person of God. 
See, for the Jews, what, was it, what did it mean to be a person of God? It meant to keep the law. It meant to follow the law. We're going to hear the word circumcision in a few minutes. For a Jew, you keep the law, and that's how you are a person of God. But I wonder, did we listen to what it says? Even the Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it without having heard it. Can you imagine what this would have sounded like to a Jewish person? They're going to ask a question. What's the point of being a Jew then? I'm so glad we have that question because that's how Paul begins chapter 3. Because what Paul is doing is he's, he's saying all of these things and he's stirring up in them all of these questions that need to be answered. And that's next week's sermon. And this is also pretty challenging for us to hear. Because we think that the, the way to be God's people, the way to be in the kingdom, are some pretty limiting ways. But, but Paul is challenging these notions. And what he's saying is the measuring stick is our actions. Our actions in accordance with the revelation that God has given us. Because our actions always reveal what's going on inside of us. Doesn't matter what we think. Doesn't matter what we say. Matters what our actions are. What are we doing with our lives? And Paul says that they and us are going to be judged on the basis of our actions. He says, for those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers, there's eternal life. So if natural revelation moves me to honor God, then I'm going to get eternal life. For those who refuse to obey the truth and live lives of wickedness, there's God's anger and wrath poured out on them. God does not show favoritism. See, God, God's fairness defies our concepts of favoritism. God is not just in the way that we are just. And to that, we should all say, thank God. We should all say, amen. That God operates on a different level of fairness, on a different level of justice than us. I love the first part of verse 12. When the Gentiles sin, they'll be destroyed, even though they've never had God's written law. Why? Why would God judge the Gentiles when they've never had the written law? Well, it's because they're not living in obedience to the way that God has revealed himself to them through creation. Does this make sense? So they know, according to Romans 1, they know instinctively what they're supposed to do. And what Paul tells them is, well, they don't do it. They worship idols. They think up in their own minds what God ought to be like. And what we're going to read over the next several weeks is the law doesn't save anyone. In fact, it just reveals to people what sin is. And here's the second part of verse 12. And the Jews who do have God's law will be judged by that law where they fail to obey it. Why? Because God has revealed himself to them in a certain way. And what they've said is... I. I don't want to do it. I don't want to be obedient to it. I don't want to follow it. See, God is perfectly just. And I love 
this next part. It says, for merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It's obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. Do we see how this catches everyone? See, we, I believe, live in this space where, where we think if we're just exposed to the law, if we hear the law, if we come and gather together, whether it's in this room on Sunday morning or in a small group throughout the week, or we read our Bibles and we're just exposed to it, we think that our exposure to God is what saves us. We think by being aware of what God is saying and doing is what saves us. But what God through Paul is telling us is, is if you're not keeping it, you're not his people. If I'm not keeping God's law, I'm not his person. It's not just natural revelation or the law that saves us. It's the way we respond. So this is what Paul says. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written on their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them that what they're doing is right. God through Jesus Christ will judge everyone's secret life. This is the point of our conscience. This is the point of what God is doing. This is the fact that we are made in God's image to condemn us or to teach us that what we are doing right. I think for us, it's good to talk about this, talk about this pronoun change again from they, them, to, to you and your. And here's my example. We talked about this Thursday night in my small group. Um, I call this guy Desert Island Guy. Have you ever met Desert Island Guy? Desert Island Guy is the person that we all dream up in our minds as we are reading the Bible and we're thinking about how to apply it and we read these verses about salvation and then someone always says, okay, but what about Desert Island Guy? What about the guy who's on a desert island who's, who's never been exposed to the Bible? What about Desert Island Guy? He's never heard the law. He's never heard anything about Jesus. What about that guy? What's really cool about the things that we're talking about today is that God's got Desert Island Guy under control. God 100% has Desert Island Guy under control. That's what it means when it says that God doesn't show favoritism. See, God recognizes that Desert Island Guy lives on a desert island. And he hasn't been exposed to the law. He hasn't been exposed to Jesus. That's why God judges everyone for what they've done. And I know some of you right now, your alarm bells are going off. Let me, let, me, let me tell you right now, just because Desert Island guy lives on a desert island doesn't mean he's saved. Don't put me into that category. It doesn't mean he's saved. See, because Desert Island guy has an opportunity to respond to the revelation that he has been given. And what Romans 1 says is most people, when they're Desert Island guy, they're going to see God reveal himself through creation. And what are they going to do? They're going to reject him. 
They're going to create an idol. They're going to worship a false god. They're going to make up in their mind what God is really like. And this is, and this is good news for Desert Island Guy. And it's good news for us when we think about Desert Island Guy. And then we had this conversation. Well, then, if Desert Island Guy can know what he knows about God, why do we need to go and tell him? Because he's probably going to turn his back on God. And what Desert Island Guy needs is not just the God of creation, but he needs the God of the New Testament. He needs Jesus to save him from his sins. And see, what's, what's going on here is, is the Jews are so caught up in what they think, right? This is the stereotyping of the Gentiles. They're so caught up in what they think the Gentiles are really like that they fail to see their own sin. Have you ever done that? I call that whataboutism. It's like my least favorite thing on social media. One political party does something, and what does everybody automatically say? Oh, yeah, well, what about? And then we do that, right? There's some kind of thing that we see, and then we always have to say, well, what about? Well, God, through Paul, is not, he's not having it. He's using the sins of the Gentiles, them. The outward sins of the Gentiles, their sins to reveal the sins of the Jews, you. Because whether it's an outward sin or whether it's internalized inward sin, it's still sin. So if the Jews aren't relying on natural revelation, what are they relying on? Let's read verses 17 through 24. Note the word, you who call yourselves Jews are relying on God's law and you boast about your special relationship with him. You know what he wants. You know what is right because you have been taught his law. You are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for people who are lost in darkness. You think you can instruct the ignorant and teach children the ways of God, for you are certain that God's law gives you complete knowledge and truth. So what is the, what's the sin of the Jews in here? They're focused on the law, right? They're convinced that the law is going to save them. Well then, if you teach others, why don't you teach yourself? You tell others not to steal, but do you steal? You say it is wrong to commit adultery, but do you commit adultery? You condemn idolatry, but do you use items stolen from pagan temples? You are so proud of knowing the law, but you dishonor God by breaking it. No wonder the scriptures say the Gentiles blaspheme the name of God because of you. So this is pretty self-explanatory. The Jews aren't pointing to the law as something they believe in or something that they are obedient to. They're using it as a means of itself unto relation, of, until salvation. See, the Jews think, the Jews think that because they have the law, because they've been exposed to the law, because they have thousands of years of history being God's people, they somehow think that they are automatically saved. They don't have to do anything. They just have to keep the law. 
They have to follow the law. They have to follow the rites and the rituals of the law. They just have to go to the tabernacle. They just have to go to the temple. They just have to worship at certain times in certain places. And as long as they do that, then they're in. But this is just going through the motions. They're not keeping the law to be saved. They're keeping the law because they think the law saves them. And I love the end of verse 24. The Gentile world looks at them as people who just roll through the motions. And this ought to to be a shot to our hearts. The Gentile world looks at the Jews as they go through the motions, as they follow their rituals, and they do all of those things, and they wonder where the transformation is. And they don't see any transformation. And the scripture tells us that the Gentiles blaspheme God because of it. And see, the question that we then ought to ask when the world sees me, what do they see? Does the world see me as a follower of Christ just going through the motions? Keeping the law? Do they see a transformed person in me? Do they see a transformed person in you? Maybe that's why. Maybe. Maybe that's why the non-believers that we are in relationship with don't want anything to do with the Christ that we claim to follow because we're not living lives of transformation. I mean, we might walk around like this. We might have a bumper sticker on the back of our car. We might have a Jesus t-shirt. We might throw a verse on our Facebook page. But is that transformation? Is that change? See, we have a world who's watching us. Came across this great quote this week from Alistair Begg. I don't have his accent. The pervasive influences of the surrounding godless culture were in the very family of Gideon, the servant God had chosen to use. And before we find ourselves far too quick to speak in judgment, let us stand back and ask, is it not true that we have met the enemy and it is us? The real battle we fight is a battle of eroded holiness. It is a battle of prevailing godlessness. It is a battle of absorption into the culture. A.W. Tozer's words have become reality. The church is now the best disguised set of pilgrims that the world has ever seen. Because we have been so inculcated in so much of what is around us, that is the first enemy that needs to be addressed. See, our our problem is us. Our problem is what's going on inside of us as people who who are in the process of being transformed into, into God's people. Our problem is us. Do people see a people who are ashamed and embarrassed of the gospel? When you encounter non-believers, 
Do they see a people who are embarrassed and ashamed of the gospel? Do they see people who have been impacted and affected by the gospel demonstrate those things in their lives? What are we known for? Or do people simply see faithful churchgoers? Or do people see, simply see people carrying around their Bible with a form of holiness but without the power? The church at Rome was known for its belief and its obedience. What are we known for? Not just us as Westway, but what are you known for? Are you known for your belief and your obedience? So the question then, like how do we know if we're just playing the morality game or if we're really in, right? How can we know? Romans 25 to 29, 2, 25 to 29. The Jewish ceremony of circumcision has value only if you obey God's law. But if you don't obey God's law, you're no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. This would, oh man, we don't get how offensive this, this would have been to a Jewish hearer. Doesn't even compare. And if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law, but don't obey it. For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents or because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God. And true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law. Rather, it is a change of heart produced by the Spirit. And a person with a changed heart, changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. See, God's people aren't his because they look and act the part. God's people are his because they have a changed heart. Because there's something that has gone on inside of them to make them new. And the question that we need to wrestle with ultimately, that Paul is calling the Jews and the Gentiles to wrestle with, is do you have a new heart? Do you have a new heart? You can't live the life that God is calling you to live without one. I can't live the life that God is calling me to live without one. And none of this is about perfection. Because we're not going to be perfect. We are not going to be perfectly obedient and live a life of faith and belief. We're not going to do it. We're not going to be perfect. But it is about faith and belief and obedience to the power of the Holy Spirit. It's about the literal hundreds of decisions that I make every single day. That determines whether or not I have a changed heart. And it's about the hundreds of decisions that you make every single day that determine whether or not you have a changed heart. And the choice is simple. Will we do good seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers? Or will we refuse to obey the truth and live lives of wickedness? See, Jesus didn't just save the Gentiles from their sinful actions. He doesn't just save you from your sinful actions. He saves us from a sin, sinful mindset. He saves us from the judgmentalism and self-righteousness. 
He saves us from our attitudes and he offers the same to us. And Jesus isn't after their salvation. Jesus is after our salvation. He's after you. Like you. Not just them outside of this place, but Jesus is after you. And my hunch is, unless your conscience is absolutely seared, you know that's true. I think that you know there is something fundamentally flawed with the system of the world. I think all of us know that's true. And Romans is here giving us this diagnosis. It's not just them, but it's me, it's you. And my question, if you're not a follower of Christ here today, my question is, do you have the courage to admit that? Do you have the courage to acknowledge that the problem is fundamentally you? Oh, and it's everybody else. But it's fundamentally you. And this is what it means to be a follower of Christ. I had somebody ask me this in small group last year. We, we use this word, he said, we use this, this phrase, follower of Christ or Christian. And like, what does that mean? Maybe you've wondered that. We've said that. What does that mean to be a Christian? A Christian is to admit the reality of our situation and throw ourselves onto the ground at the foot of the cross and into God's mercy. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. To know that we're sinners, to acknowledge that sin, and recognize that only God can save us. And that salvation comes through Jesus. See, this is how we're unashamed of the gospel in our lives. Is we don't worry about what other people are going to think of us when we do this. We're going to live a transformed life. And here's the really good news is when you do that, he's going to receive you. He's going to forgive you. No questions asked. This sounds really, really easy, and it's because it is. Because Jesus is going to receive you. He's going to accept you. He's not going to give you a line of 87 things that you have to do before you can become a Christian. He's not going to ask you to clean up your life and straighten up your life before you do it. Just go to him and admit your sin to him. Because according to what we've read in Romans chapter 2, he knows. You are not going to tell God anything that he doesn't already know. He's not surprised. Jesus isn't living in buyer's remorse because of the choices that you made. Like he knew what he was buying. And this is really good news for us who aren't followers of Christ, that you can go to him and you can receive mercy and you can forgive, you can receive forgiveness. And the question is, have you made that decision? Have you made that decision? Are you inwardly changed because of what God has done through the power of the Holy Spirit? Each week here at Westway, we, we participate in something called communion together. And and we celebrate this. We participate in communion together as people who have been inwardly changed. That's, that's what this is ultimately about. Because when we celebrate communion, when we participate in communion, we are acknowledging that Jesus has died for our sins. We are acknowledging 
that redemption cost something. It didn't cost me anything. At least redemption didn't. But redemption cost Jesus everything. It cost him his life. And when we participate and celebrate communion together, we are, we're remembering that. This is our act of remembrance that someone has paid the price. But like we talked about last week, we're not without, without cost or expectation as believers. Not because we're earning our salvation, but in response to our salvation. See, Jesus has saved us, and then what do I have to do? Well, I have to live a life of, faithful, of, of faith and obedience, of belief and trust. That's, that's going to be my response to this. And I'm not doing that to earn my salvation because it's already been paid. Thank God. Thank God I don't have 87, thank God I don't have two hoops to jump through. Like one of the amazing things is when we think about the Old Testament law, like we think there's, you know, there are 613 laws that the Jews couldn't keep. Go back to Exodus chapter 20. Okay, 10. They couldn't keep those. Go back to the garden. One. Can't keep that. The only thing we have is deliverance through Christ. And this is good news. So what I want to do is I want to give you a moment as you reflect on the reality of your changed heart. And then we'll celebrate communion together. So I'm just going to give you a moment to reflect on the, the, the changeness of your heart because of the Holy Spirit. If you open up the top, you'll see a wafer. Jesus, when he did this, he said, this is my body. It's been given for you. That's been broken for you. Take and eat. And then he poured a cup. And he said, this is my blood. That's been poured out for you. Take and drink. Will you pray with me? God, we come to you this morning thankful that you don't just fix the outside messes that everybody else sees, but you fix our hearts. You give us a new heart. You give us a new mindset. I'm thankful that you have given us the fullness of revelation through your son, Jesus. We're not waiting for something new to learn more about you. We have you. I pray, God, that we would live in accordance of that knowledge of you, that it would lead to transformation that we would see you at work in our lives and in the hundreds of choices that we make every single day, we would choose to follow you. We would choose to live in, in accordance with the way that you have revealed yourself and you have revealed yourself through your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray, amen.